Welcome to the Portage County Safety Council podcast. We hope you enjoy today's featured message. I just wanted to start the presentation with a brief disclaimer. So I'm talking about drugs in the workplace, and then we're going to secondarily talk about the Ohio Medical Marijuana Control Program, which is obviously going to affect drugs in the workplace as well. So I just want to keep in mind that this is educational and informational. It's not meant to tell you what to do. It's not meant to be any type of legal advice, just kind of some suggestions. And if you do uh, choose to make any changes or have any questions further about medical marijuana in your company, I would encourage you to speak with whoever you do with your legal-related issues. So I wanted to start off being pretty boring and just talk a little bit about stats, drugs in the workplace. When we think about drugs, a lot of times we think about it as it's more of a personal issue. It doesn't really affect us. It's not, it's not my business what you're doing. But the stats actually tell us otherwise, that actually individuals using drugs in their private lives does affect the workplace. Not only things like morale, but also productivity and efficiency overall. So it is actually something we should consider and keep our minds open for. So this is the first stat that is, I think, very interesting. So 70%, so about 15 million Americans who use drugs illegally actually are employed. Did we know that? Did we think that? A lot of times we assume if people are using drugs, especially drugs that are illegal, that maybe they're not in the workplace at all, so we don't have to worry about it. But in fact, they are. <laughs> Most people who use drugs and illegal drugs are employed. So it's definitely different than a lot of times we would perceive. Drug use in Ohio. So I want to present some information about some deaths that we've experienced and a little bit about some specific drug use that we have within our state. So 4,329 overdose deaths occurred in 2016, and of that, over 3,600 were directly related to opioids. Opioids include prescription medications like Oxycontin, codeine, also heroin, fentanyl, morphine, those fit within that. So this includes prescription medications as well as illegal drug use. In 2017, and these are the most updated statistics, they, like everything else, they, they come out a year or so later. So these are kind of where we are now. We had a huge increase. Look at the number of overdose-related deaths. 4,854 people died from overdose-related deaths. And of that, 987 were directly due to heroin. The reason I put that in there is because we often think heroin, we think about heroin, and heroin is a huge deal, and a lot of people have experienced major losses with that. This actually is a big decline from the previous year, which is a good thing. But still, we have some work to go, but this is a decline for overall-related heroin deaths. If you want to just look at a year worth of stats over from half of the year to the next, over 5,000 deaths. So that was a 32% increase from that previous cycle year before. So we are, we're seeing decreases in some areas, but overall increases across the board. A couple of positives, decrease in prescription opioid deaths. Why do you think that's happening? Why are we having a decrease in prescription opioids? We have new regulations. Now, this can be problematic for those who are dealing with chronic pain, but a lot of these overdose deaths occurred from acute issues where individuals were given far too much medication to manage an acute issue, and ultimately it led to a potential overdose. Uh, so we're getting our hands kind of on that. Heroin deaths have stabilized and in many areas actually are decreasing across the board. Again, amazing. We're making progress there. Still a long way to go, but we are seeing some positive things here. But on the downside, there's an increase in fentanyl-related deaths. So those individuals who maybe we have lost to heroin, we may be losing others now to fentanyl. 
which is a super, super strong opioid. It's, it's 100 times stronger than heroin. So it's, uh, it's a, a very, very big issue. But heroin deaths, that's at least one positive. So that's good. We're decreasing on that. Again, on the negative, because individuals are trying to make safer decisions, they either need to use drugs for one reason or another, or they want to in some cases, but they also want to be safe about it because they know the dangers. Reality is we generally know the dangers of using drugs. So they've shifted to using meth and cocaine instead. So we're seeing all of these problems with opioids. So now we have an increase in meth and cocaine use again. Problem is that a lot of times now we're seeing mixes of fentanyl within the meth and within the cocaine. So we can't seem to get fully away from it. This is just a pop fact. So I just randomly have these in here because I just am like, wow, I'm astounded by this. So 2015, Ohio providers wrote 85.8 opioid prescriptions per every 100 people. 9.96 million prescriptions. Think how much medication that is that's floating around. These numbers have declined slightly because we have implemented the new acute-related prescription policies. So that's really good. But look at this. The same year in the United States, the average was only 70 per 100. So Ohio is prescribing and losing people at greater rates than our other states across the country. This drug-related issue is a personal issue. It is a workplace issue. Here's your workplace stats. You probably already know this, right? You've heard, you've heard these stats, I assume. So 2016, 5,190 fatal workplace injuries in the United, this is across the United States, not just, not Ohio only. <laughs> Thank goodness, across the entire country. 2017, great job. We had a decline. 5,147 fatal workplace injuries. So that's really good. We, we made some changes and we made improvements and we, and we lost less lives. What isn't changing is drugs in the workplace. <laughs> Overdose fatalities increased by 25% every single year since 2012. No different. Continue to increase again. Let's look at these stats. Overdoses from non-medical use of drugs or alcohol while on the job. One of the major categories next to falls. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Slips or falls. Thank you. So 165 in 2015 to 217 in 2016 to 272 overdose deaths in the workplace in 2018. This number continues to increase. So we really have to consider what's happening within our work sites. It's also the fastest growing category across the board in regards to deaths in the workplace. So pretty soon, if we keep on this path, drugs in the workplace or the deaths are going to ultimately take over all the other categories. This is a Debbie Downer lesson, huh? <laughs> well, there could be, but does it really matter thinking about it? So I, that's a great question. <laughs> no, but I mean, in regards, to, in regards to the lives lost. So more people are working, you're going to have more drug-related deaths. Obviously, that makes sense. It's, the numbers continue to increase. So we have more people working. We're going to have more people who are affected by drug use in the workplace. So it, exactly, that's my thought. So if we're having this occur and the numbers are increasing because we have more people working, great that they're working, but this is also increasing. So it's a good question. Uh, statistically, I don't know how it compares. I just know that the numbers are increasing across the board. But that is a good, good question for sure. Okay, so employees in the U.S. workforce testing positive for drugs increased over the last three years to 10-year high. So when we are drug testing, they're testing positive more frequently, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was not intentional, but that's good. I should, I should note that. 10-year high. <laughs> uh, the three main substances that are generally positive, amphetamines, heroin, and marijuana are your three main. One in 11 job applicants couldn't pass an oral fluid drug screen. Do you know what that means? That's true, yes. <laughs> Saliva. 
<laughs> it means that they could have been using prior to the job, prior to actually going in for the interview. When you do a saliva test, you can get results quickly from use that happen pretty immediately. So that means that people are going in to get jobs while intoxicated, right? Heroin use increased in the workplace, but oxy, uh, oxycodone actually decreased. All right. So what results if we have drugs in the workplace? Uh, the drug, when we talk about drugs in the workplace, we're always going to have drugs in the workplace. We have caffeine. We have over-the-counter medications. We have prescription medications. So not always does it result in negative effects, but it can. And so these are the major areas. So premature death, fatal accidents, injuries, accidental rates are increasing. You have your absenteeism or your extra sick leave. So people may be employed and they may be working, but they may not actually be there working. <laughs> and loss of production. Some other things that can result, issues with coworkers, poor decision-making. That's a, that can be a big deal depending on the type of work that the person is doing. Theft, loss of employment. So those individuals that we had, we lose them and that costs us a lot of money to try to replace that, that person. Family members can be distracted. I have some stats to show you this here uh, in a couple slides. Increased insurance costs, illegal activities at work, including selling drugs, higher turnover, and ultimately, we have to have a changing landscape in regards to protecting people from on-site overdoses. So something I never expected that we would have to actually encounter. Uh, so that one's, that one's kind of sad for me. Nationally, let's look at some of the stats. 39% increase in absenteeism for individuals who tested positive while working. So they were, they were employed in an agency, they got drug tested, and looking at all of those stats, looking at the rates, absenteeism was high for those individuals. 39% of employees use prescription pain medications at work. Not necessarily a big deal, but do you know where those meds are? Where are they secured? Are other people having access to them? Things like that that are important to consider. 32% of employees test positive for drugs overall. 14% of employees sell or, sell or borrow drugs at work. So we talk about drugs in the workplace. 14%. 10% of employees deal with an overdose at work. So one in 10 of us in this room may encounter this. And this was from actually uh, employing or from analyzing millions of drug screens, as well as talking to employees and employers through the National Safety Council. They conducted a study in 2017. All right, did you know? 16% of emergency room patients injured at work have alcohol in their system. Here's the family. So over a quarter of employees, adults, say that they have drug use addiction, drug use or addiction in their family. And of those individuals, almost half say that their productivity suffered because of someone else's drug use. So drugs in the workplace doesn't always mean drugs. The effect of drugs carries over into the workplace. So some warning signs, just kind of some things to think about to look for within your workplaces. Change in appearance in employees. Now, this isn't, this isn't always a bad thing, and it doesn't automatically mean 
that someone is using drugs. <laughs> just one sign. Person could be having a stressful day, could have had a long night. So don't automatically jump to conclusions, but these are just kind of some, some ideas. Lack of sleep indicators, constant yawning, circles under the eyes, lethargy, things like that. Actually being high on the job, increased absences. Why are, why are the employees, why are they having more absences if they haven't prior? What's changed? Frequent small accidents. It's not always a big accident. Unusual behavior. That could be so many things. Unusual physical symptoms and personality change. Oh, their priorities or values, or they start talking about different things as their attitude shifted. And evidence of use. So you can see the actual drugs or paraphernalia in the workplace. You can see the individual actually using the substances. These are some warning signs to, uh, to keep in mind to help protect employees. Okay, so that's drugs overall. Any questions? I'm nervous to say that. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and, and that's where jumping to conclusions is, that's where I, I kind of preface that. Uh, you know, what's interesting with drug use is that uh, some of the signs are very similar to just general life stressors as well. The, the, the real way would be to either you can, you can talk to them and ask, hey, you know, is everything going all right? It's really the biggest thing is checking in on it. Uh, the physical symptoms could be drastic weight loss or weight gain. Like you said, if someone is using a stimulant substance like cocaine or meth, there could be increased scratches or scabs or uh, dry lips is a, uh, is a big thing with, with around the skin being dry. So there's some physical symptoms like that that you can look for. But overall, substance use warning signs or symptoms, make they're very similar to that of overall mental health related symptoms. They're very connected. And it, what a person who has depression could be using a substance, but they may just have depression, which in its own right is very difficult to manage. But so they are very hand in hand. So there's some slightly, there's some physical symptoms that you could see. The big difference would be if you see a person who's high, as well as the evidence, the paraphernalia and such. Yeah. Runny noses, a bloody nose that could come out of nowhere. Those are kinds of things that would be related to some of your stimulants, specifically cocaine. Uh, but overall, yes, the physical symptoms. Yes. Yeah, so those physical symptoms related to the direct, the direct usage of the substance. So those are someone's, yeah, someone's using injections. Or someone is wearing, it's warm and they're wearing long sleeves. Or, you know, they, should, they don't need to be wearing long sleeves. Or they're taking long, long breaks in the bathroom. Or they're staying in their cars for a really long time. Unusual behavior like that. Those are things that maybe something else is occurring and it doesn't have to be drug use. But it, something is going on in that person's life that ultimately could still lead to an issue in the workplace. Yeah, so there are those physical symptoms as well as those behavior issues. Are there any others you think we should mention? Yeah, and uh, uh, definitely the physical ones are, are really you don't usually you don't usually see them though until the issue has progressed, and so that's where the general warning signs are, are really important to to get. Yeah, it's it's we, it's it's difficult because nowadays we kind of have to look out for each other differently than we did in the past, and that really is a big component of of it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll keep it. If I think of anything else, I'll I'll, I'll blurt it out along the way. <laughs> but that's a really good question. Thank you for asking. All right, so um, marijuana is the next part of, of this. What, how are we on time? 
So I just am going to present the medical marijuana program that we have in Ohio with just some current stats on what's going on, as well as discuss how it actually affects what you have to do in regards to medical marijuana patients in, in the workplace. Okay, medical marijuana in the United States, there's actually 33 states now that have legalized medical marijuana use. Uh, Ohio was the 25th state, actually, I have a list of 26, but we were time-wise actually number 25, so we made the halfway mark out of the 50. There were uh, three in 2018. You see that we're legalized, and coming up in this year, there probably will be uh, one or two more. There's a couple that are going to be on the ballot in the, the coming election. Recreational use, there's actually 10 states that have legalized additionally for recreational use, as well as uh, D.C. has legalized as well. It's kind of, they call it quasi-legal. It depends on where you are. <laughs> so there's uh, still kind of some weirdness about, about their recreational legalization. Uh, but yeah, 10 states, and the most recent was Michigan, which is the really the closest, the closest to us. So that was a big thing. And does anyone know what happened with Canada recently? No? <laughs> uh, Canada actually legalized it for the entire country. So it is legal, recreational, medicinal for the entire country. Uh, before it was certain provinces, but it's the entire country now has access to marijuana, recreational, and medicinal. So that's a big deal, first, first country to do that. So there's going to be a lot of eyes on, not that there isn't always, <laughs> but a lot of eyes on Canada and what Canada is doing in regards to, to marijuana. Okay, so in Ohio, on uh, September 8th, 2016, through a legislative act, the, the policy was actually approved. So it wasn't voted on by the people. Our last vote, actually, in Ohio, people said no. It was 70% were against. And that was directly related to how it was proposed, proposed I would say, as a monopoly-type uh, type establishment. With that, it said that two years from then, September 8th of 2018, we would start our program. It didn't work out that way. We are just now ruling out things end of October, or end of October, excuse me, end of January, beginning of February. We started to see dispensaries opening, product being available, and getting our first client or first patients out there to actually purchase marijuana for medical use. This program is overseen by the Board of Pharmacy, which is how all of our prescription medications are overseen. So it, it is very, it is a very strict medical marijuana program. It's one of the stricter ones in the country. If you go to medical, medicalmarijuana.ohio.gov, within that, you can learn all of the ins and outs of medical marijuana. I'm just presenting to you the basics of the program. But there's so much more that you can learn if you have an interest in it, either from a personal or from a professional standpoint. Okay, four keys to this. Must get a registration number and pay a fee to be a medical marijuana patient. The fee is $50 if you're a patient, and it's, it has to be renewed every year. $50 every year. The registration number comes from a physician who has been certified to recommend medical marijuana. And then you have to complete the application within the registration system. Certified physicians recommend medical marijuana for people who qualify for one of 21 qualifying conditions. It's a recommendation, not a prescription. That's important to keep in mind. It is a federally illegal substance still, 
Therefore, it is not a prescription that you can go to the pharmacy to get. You have to go to a dispensary to get it. Therefore, it is a recommendation, not a prescription. You're permitted a 90-day supply. There's no smoking. It can be vaporized, and there's no home grow. The 90-day supply is different depending on the type of product it is. So if plant-based versus a tincture, they're going to have different amounts. But whatever it is, any combination of those products can't exceed a 90-day supply. And the fourth big thing is how it's set up. Across the state, there will be 60 dispensaries. So that's where a medical marijuana patient can go to purchase the product. Only individuals who have the medical marijuana card are allowed in dispensaries. So in other states, you can just go for funsies and look around. <laughs> Ohio's like, no, we don't care about that. <laughs> so you have to have a green card. You have to have your own card to go. There are, there are 29 cultivators or grow facilities. Some of them, 16, are large, and that's based upon the square footage. And then we have the 13 that are small, or that's vice versa. 40 processors, those are the individuals who actually take the product that was grown and break it down in order to send off some to be tested and then send the rest to the dispensaries for distribution. And there are five testing facilities across the state as well. With this, this uh, only 56 dispensaries thus far have been approved, but I think, I feel like it's only three that are currently operating. The rest are not ready to go yet. They haven't completed all of their safety requirements or completed all of their paperwork or paid all of their fees. Something has kept them from, from going forward. And of the 40 processors, there's only 38 so far that have been approved. So there's two more to, to be added to the list at some point. Okay, here's information on actually, so what's happened? So we, we started, we have a couple of, we started at the end of January, beginning of February. Here's our numbers. So far, as of February 28th, 22,276 recommendations have been made. Now I want to skip down real quick. 22,276 recommendations. There are 413 physicians who have been approved to make those recommendations. How many recommendations is the, are these physicians making? This is, that it, it's a, it's very interesting uh, to me <laughs> with that. So of those, of those who have been, who have, are registered with recommendations, there are 19,395. So 3,000 people got recommendations but never completed the registration process, <coughs> which means that they're not a medical marijuana patient. But they have the, recommend, they have the recommendation if they choose to be. We have a veteran list. We have those who are considered indigent. And uh, 107 have a terminal diagnosis. The rest generally have one of the qualifying conditions. Thus far, so in about a month or so of being open, 5,465 patients have gone to purchase medical marijuana. And that's according to the ORS system. Do you all know what the ORS system is? Have you heard of that before? Yeah, so ORS is actually prescriptions for, for narcotic drugs. Those things like the opioids, things like Xanax, those kinds of medications, they're recorded in that system to help monitor 
doctor prescribing practices, but also to help ensure that patients don't have any sort of medication conflicts. When a doctor recommends medical marijuana, that goes into that system as well. So now your medical marijuana use is directly tied with your prescription use, which will be helpful later on if there are any type of interactions that we find that result from that use. So they go into that system. There are also almost a thousand individuals who are registered as caregivers. Now caregivers themselves aren't medical marijuana patients. They are allowed to have the product with them in order to provide care for someone who is. So some of these individuals may not be able to go into the dispensary on their own and get the product. So they have a caregiver who's permitted to go on their behalf. Part of this could be for children as well. Children aren't gonna be <laughs> permitted into the dispensary but their parent, who is the caregiver, could go on their behalf or their legal guardian, whatever the case. So these are updated, uh, the physician numbers, as of March 7th. This was the latest data on the website. Qualifying conditions, just going to point out a couple of them. Most of them are actually pretty harsh conditions. We have cancer, multiple sclerosis, Tourette's, AIDS or HIV, glaucoma, these were, these, this list was created based off of a research that shows use of medical marijuana for some individuals may have been effective, and so these are the ones that were approved. Uh, more can be added as time goes on if it's determined that that's an appropriate decision, and patients or individuals can petition for that. Any questions about the program itself? You mean the state? Why isn't it permitted? Because that's the most, that with uh, smoking, if you think about the root of administration with drugs, the way that you take the substance, that dictates the effects that you'll experience. And smoking, it gets the substance into your brain the fastest, it's, so it's considered to be the most addictive style of using drugs. So its, it's intent is to decrease potential addiction. Secondarily, this is medical marijuana. What medication do you smoke? <laughs> So that's the other thing, that uh, medication isn't generally smoked, uh, but that's where they include the vaporizing component, that you can vaporize it instead of smoking it. Because with the administration, if you take it orally or you take it topically, it takes time to be absorbed into your system for you to experience the result. It can take up to two hours. For someone living with chronic pain, that's too long. So that's where the vaporizing came into play. Similar technique, but you don't, it's not as addictive, and you can control the THC content. Is that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, so the different studies show that about one in 10 people can become addicted to marijuana. Those one, of those one in 10, about 10% have a severe addiction that can lead to negative effects within their life. The younger you are, the more likely for it to result, and also if you have a family history of addiction, as well as if you have a mental health related issue, it increases the likelihood of developing addiction. And there's also, which is really interesting, and I'm going off topic, don't let me do this, you can't ask these questions again. I get, I get really excited because I, I research marijuana. They've actually identified specific genes, which is different than many of the other substances, that if a person were tested genetically, and they found, and I can't say it at all, <laughs> they found this gene that if they use marijuana, they have a greater risk of becoming addicted. It's very different than other drugs. 
We don't have specific markers that tell us, hey, if you use this substance, addiction is a possibility. So that's something that's really unique about marijuana, especially considering we don't have that much research because we halted research for so long in the country. So that's another, another key thing. And that's generally... Uh, that's a tricky one. Actually, a lot of them will say that they started with cigarettes. So uh, the whole gateway theory idea is tricky uh, because it's not necessarily the case. Um, yeah, some people will say inhalants. Some people will say cigarettes. Some people will say alcohol. Some people will say marijuana. The, the only thing we know is that generally the harder illegal drugs, the majority of people don't start with those first. They start with something else. It doesn't meet their needs, and they transition to something else. It's not necessarily a great gateway effect, um, but marijuana can be, for some people, a transition substance, but it isn't necessarily for others. Yeah, yeah actually, and that's been happening currently, right now. It's actually happening right now with this current administration. Uh, and, and so... Um, What's, what's happened is that it's a federally legal substance, and it has officially been classified as federally legal since 1970. It's a Schedule One drug, which means that it's seen as uh, potentially it'll be has potential for abuse, and abuse means use. If people have access to it, they're going to use it, which ain't a lie, right? You look at the stats. People using it, it's not even accessible, <laughs> although it is actually accessible, <laughs> but it's not legal, really, in many places. So the first thing is it potential for abuse, which means use. The second thing is that there's no actual way to measure its safety in regards to dosage. So for one person, they may have one experience, another may have another. It's not consistent enough across the board. And the other thing, they say there's no recognized medical use, which is the very obviously controversial component of that, because, well, <laughs> we're using it medically. But so, yes, yeah, since it's Schedule 1, all Schedule 1 substances are illegal, which means that depending upon your funding stream, depending upon you know, what, what you do, medical marijuana may not be permissible, even though it's permitted by the states. It's kind of like the United States is the parents, and then all the states are the little kids, and the parent says, hey, okay, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to let you grow and make your own decisions, but if you do something I don't like, <laughs> I'm going to come back in. And that's what's been happening recently, is that many of these facilities, especially in California, legalized early without a lot of restrictions are being invaded federally and shut down because their operations are something that they question. Yeah, absolutely. There is, there is definitely with it being a Schedule 1 substance, there is always that, that possibility. It's not likely, but it, uh, it has happened to some individuals within the year. We, yeah, we have no idea. Uh, but yeah, definitely there is, that, there is that, that element of risk that comes with it for sure. I think most individuals are assuming it will be rescheduled, uh, but yeah, right now it's not, and so it is federally legal, which puts you in kind of a tricky, tricky situation. Yeah, sure, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and there's there's a lot with it. There's a lot with it. Let's uh, let's go back to the workplace, <laughs> and, and let's let's get on track here. <laughs> yeah, and that's what. That's what we're going to do right now. So here's some, some key facts. So House Bill 523 is what made medical marijuana legalized in the state. Drug-free workplaces and zero-tolerance drug policies remain alive and well. They stand as is. Yo, drug-free workplace policy, you do not have 
you do not, that means that you don't have to permit medical marijuana. So despite Ohio's new law, medical marijuana is prohibited under these policies. No obligation to accommodate an employee's medical marijuana use, possession, or distribution. You do not have to hire or employ, and you have a right to fire individuals who test positive for marijuana usage. They do not have to be permitted to possess the substance on hand, and they are not permitted to distribute it either. And there, it's, we'll get to it here. There's no ADA accommodations that are required, no FMLA obligation, and workers' comp is obviously uh, not effective either. So you aren't required to accommodate someone who has a medical marijuana recommendation. That is correct. The thing, though, is you have to have marijuana in there specifically. If you do not, it doesn't include marijuana. What is excluded from your policy, that's not a part of your policy. Yeah, you do. Absolutely. All right, we're gonna, I'm going to get to a list of some things to consider here in a, sec in a second. We just have a few more of these to give you with this. It's legal to fire employees for use, possession, or distribution of medical marijuana. So with this, it's actually built into the law that you can fire a person because they test positive for marijuana and they are not permitted to sue you for it. And you also don't have to hire them and they do not and they cannot sue you. Now, in regards to ADA accommodations, uh, you have to make ADA accommodations for an individual for their condition. You do not have to make ADA accommodations for an individual's medical marijuana usage. Does that make sense? You have to accommodate the individual, but that doesn't include permitting them to use medical marijuana. Okay, uh, they're not entitled to unemployment benefits, and the just cause, the just cause, just cause clause that we have in Ohio still rings true for those who have a legitimate medical marijuana recommendation. Workers' compensation claims remain unchanged if a person is found to have their medical marijuana use was found to have contributed to the accident, then they are not eligible for workers' compensation. For marijuana gets rescheduled, changes everything. Also, if there are any ballot measures that get voted on by the state and that is approved, that changes based upon what that measure says. So things that definitely important to keep that, keep that information up to date. So protecting your agency, comply with federal regulations, Whatever federal regulations you have, go with those. Obviously, that's the that's superseding. Have a drug-free workplace in, policy in place, if possible. Review your policy at minim minimum every year. You reviewing it doesn't mean anything. You secondarily need to have your employees sign it, which means they reviewed it too, which means they agreed with it as well. If you review it but they don't see it, that doesn't count. Update your policy as laws both local, state, well, and federal, change. Include a specific statement about marijuana use, both medically and recreationally. So where it says within your, your statement, illegal dr drugs, including marijuana. When you talk about medication, prescription medication, including medical marijuana, add those words in there. So with illegal drugs, usually it can be combined in the tobacco alcohol section, but it can be combined with the prescription drugs pretty easily as well. Also, when considering whether or not you have a policy, you want to have a policy, and if you want to permit or not permit medical marijuana usage, you would need to consider the type of work you do as an agency, but also the type of work that your employees within your agency are doing. 
So if you think about marijuana usage and driving, alcohol use and driving, prescription medication use and driving, what are your policies in relation to drug use and driving? That's a big deal. That's a safety, a huge safety issue. So consider that type of work, and that can help you determine if you want to permit or not permit. You can confer with other state agencies and states where it's been legalized to get guidance on maybe how to more specifically make a statement if you don't want to just simply add in the words. And then also consider your agency mission as well as your funding streams. It's very important. What do those funding streams permit? If you allow medical marijuana, does that put your funding in jeopardy? And make sure that you're openly communicating the policy to your staff throughout. Don't make it a secret. They don't know about the policy changes that didn't happen. All right, protecting your employees, safety first. Don't permit intoxication of any kind with any substances. And also consider on-site use of medications. If you're going to permit the usage of medications on-site, what is the protocol in regards to that? How are those medications being stored? Educate. If you're a drug-free workplace, you have to educate on this, not just on the policy, but also on substances as well. You protect your employees by showing them that you care about them as human beings and providing them with appropriate education. Create a culture that's about safety. Safety council, that fits in, right? Fitting. <laughs> appropriate drug use reduces stigma. Some people are going to qualify for these conditions, and we don't want to stigmatize them because they're considering the possibility of trying a new alternative to managing their disease. And also people with substance use disorders. We're not saying people who use drugs are, are people who we don't want employed. We're saying we want to keep our workplace safe. And drug use in the workplace can hinder that possibility. If you can have an employee assistance program, this can help individuals who are struggling with life <laughs> in general. And that can ultimately help to deter drug use as well. It also can help those who are struggling with their drug use. Support treatment and recovery for those who have addiction. We don't want to necessarily toss people out. We want to help them. Help them recover. Help them be able to come back into the workplace. Because ultimately, we want to love our human, fellow humans. But we also, it's cheaper for us. <laughs> if we can help someone recover and come back, we can keep that amazing person within our facility. But we also have helped them in regards to seeking treatment for whatever the, the condition may be. Okay, protect yourself, avoid illegal drugs, misuse, and be active in your own care. What we're seeing now with, with issues with drugs is that people are just saying, okay, you're a doctor, I trust you. Don't trust doctors, except for me. <laughs> you can trust the doctor, but you need to ask questions and be active in your own care. Understand the possible, the possible effects and if there are alternatives to any type of, of treatment you're receiving. Get a hobby. <laughs> Don't be bored. <laughs> Boredom has a lot to do with drug use as well. Exercise can help. Constructively sharing feelings. <laughs> Practice stress management. Maybe consider faith or spiritual involvement. Understand and know where the appropriate helplines and hotlines are. Maybe you don't have an EA EAP, right? Is everyone here from Porch County? You have Town Hall too. Give them our number. If you don't have an established EAP, you have Town Hall 2, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. We have trained people for our helpline. Pick up our stuff. You have our number. Give it to them. So you don't even, if you don't have one, you have us. Volunteer is another opportunity. And also know your rights in regards to the agency policy. So this is kind of from the employee perspective. It's not in there. They know their rights. Consider legal drug use. And also understand about filing discrimination claims.
especially if you have a qualifying condition or you have a medical condition that requires use of prescription meds. All right, questions? No, it goes to it goes to the state. There's nothing insurance related. If you are if you are a medical marijuana patient, you're private paying. The state does have built in uh, for individuals who are lower income a reduced application fee, which which is uh, actually very thoughtful, I would think, uh, because many individuals can't receive medication of any kind because they're lower income, and so they they've made that option possible. Uh, but it is all private pay, and it goes to the state. Yeah, to the control program. Yeah, so no, uh, yeah, no, no insurance. It's not a covered insurance uh, use of any kind, unless it's Schedule 2. So keep that in mind. That changes with Schedule 2. Schedule 2 changes our lives <laughs> in, all around and everything and all of our paperwork. <laughs> so that could change things. Uh, so keep your eyes open for that. Any other uh, questions, thoughts, or anything? Tunnel 2 is here. We, you know, we do uh, our trainings in Portage County free of charge. If you want us to come in and speak with your employees about anything, even if it's just about overall wellness, mental health, those kinds of things, that's what, that's what we do. So use us as a resource. If we can be useful to you, that's why we're, that's why we're here to do that. And definitely that helpline is anonymous, so your employees can call and we will support them as best we can in whatever means they, they may need. So use that number if, they, if, you, if you want, and that can help change your culture as well by showing, hey, you're human, I care for you, let's do this together. And that's one way that you can do it and it doesn't cost you anything. It's simply just a little bit of time to share that information with your, with your agency. Yes, Narcan is a great training to consider. Even if you don't think it's a part of your life, it's a part of your life and you can save a life. So definitely that's another thing to consider with the drug-free workplace. We're actually very fortunate. For being a small county, we have a lot of really qualified and uh, loving individuals that, that work in social service that are here to serve the community. So definitely utilize all of those resources for sure. Yeah, I work in town too, so I have to talk about it, but yes, he, he is correct. Yeah, so uh, our, our counseling services specifically are directed towards uh, if you have an addiction for AOD or problem gambling and also codependency, which would be for a family member who has a loved one. Most often with that, it goes hand in hand with the loved one being in counseling with with it and so then we can secondarily work with a family member as well uh, we do also have a family program that we do quarterly uh, or three times a year where we talk about addiction and kind of how to protect yourself and and things of that nature so you can keep your eyes open for that on our website and then we have our helpline as well uh, so but coleman is a good resource for if for straight mental health counseling uh, and and that can be one of those those one of those sources where if we can't suit your needs that Coleman, Coleman is a great option to, to consider as well with that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more episodes, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Podbeam, or Stitcher. To get new episodes sent directly to your phone or smart device, be sure to subscribe. To learn more about how your company can earn up to a 4% Ohio BWC premium rebate by becoming an active member of the Portage County Safety Council, please visit our website at www.portagecountysafetycouncil.wordpress.com. The preceding information is for entertainment purposes only. Views expressed may not reflect the views of any affiliated or sponsoring individuals or organizations. Listeners should carefully weigh information provided and seek advice from an appropriate professional before implementing. Listener discretion is advised.